Russia's Chains of Value and Power, Margarita Balmaceda, Episode 37. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Professor Margarita Balmaceda about her new book, Russian Energy Chains, published by Columbia University Press as part of the Woodrow Wilson Center series. She was on the My Energy 2050 podcast in episode 12, and I'm very grateful for her to come back for the launching of her new book. We managed to meet in person during her visit to Budapest this week. Thus, what you are hearing today is an in-person interview that took place at the old Central European University, which is now the CEU Democracy. Institute. There's a bit of background noise, and as you'll hear, we were practicing a bit of social distancing in the hallway. But also, as you'll hear, our conversation moves rapidly around the issues of fossil fuels and the value chains that extend from Russia all the way to Germany. But first, a bit of background on Margarita. She was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and as her profile at her university, Sutton Hall University, states, her professional life has centered in the USA and Eastern Europe. But as we know from her previous publications on Eastern Europe, including Living the High Life in Minsk and the Politics of Energy Dependency, in addition to numerous journal articles, she's a leading scholar in post-Soviet issues and places involving the energy sector. She is also an associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. Overall, and to get to my point, I think, if I could nominate as an honorary citizen of the post-Soviet world, it would be her. That kind of represents her knowledge, extensive knowledge on the areas of post-Soviet energy systems. But before we begin today, and I'll just provide a brief summary of our extensive conversation, I want to highlight that her book, Russian Energy Chains, will be, in my opinion, the leading and most authoritative book on the subject of post-Soviet energy relations. And what does that mean, and why is it important? This podcast is focused on the energy transition. By having Margarita document the value flows, that is, who benefits and who doesn't, of the flow of oil, gas, and coal from the Russian heartland to Europe, she documents a way of life and of profits from fossil fuel extraction and processing. And as we address and we discuss in the interview, a way of life and means of governance that will be under threat as the EU and other countries implement strong policies to move away from the fossil fuel era. So there's a lot of challenges and we got to understand the history of it. The point that I'm driving home is the topic of understanding the value created from fossil fuel extraction, shipping, and usage demonstrates, as she outlines in Chapter 1, the role of power relations in the energy system. If we hope to phase out fossil fuels, we will need to address these power relations of the old fossil fuel order and the new renewable order. Russia and the relations between the EU member states hold a strong rooting in energy. This relationship will need to be renegotiated and Margarita's book lays down what these relations were built on and the areas where they could definitely change and we go into great detail on this. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. 
And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Margarita Balmaceda to discuss her book, Russian Energy Chains, the remaking of technopolitics from Siberia to Ukraine to the European Union. So Margarita, thank you for coming on the My Energy podcast. It's a wonderful opportunity. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Perfect. So we have a long list of questions and I've read your book. In three days, which means That's I, I wow. know, but I missed some parts, so I'm going to have to go back and, and read it again. But my first question to you is actually, it's not on the book, but you've written many of books uh, on energy and this post-Soviet Soviet Union and post-Soviet environment and countries. And your expertise and language skills of Eastern Europe are... are leading edge. And my, my question to you is, how did this all begin? Like, how did you get involved in energy and in the region? Why, why, what interests you so much about it? Well, it happens a little bit by chance. So I, I did my PhD on a totally different topic. I did my PhD at Princeton University, and I wrote my dissertation on Soviet Latin American studies from the Cuban Revolution to New Thinking. And since we only have two hours to talk, I cannot go into detail as to what a traumatic experience that was, <laughs> how the 13 years I spent writing or getting that PhD tortured me. But the point is that I did finish the PhD in 1996. And as you can see, that was a very different topic than the topic I'm working on now. After my PhD, I somehow, for reasons that maybe I can explain later, partly personal, partly not personal, uh, realized that it was important to look at Ukraine, that Ukraine was a very strategic <clears throat> country between Central Europe and now post-Soviet Russia. I started to look for postdocs. That's another long story how difficult it was to get a postdoc, because if you are not, if you're at Princeton University and you, you are not a male Anglo-Saxon person who has a very good relationship with your advisor, they will tell you that there are no postdocs available. But I did find one from the Ford Foundation, Postdoc for Minorities. Amazingly, I got it and I had two options. One was to go to the UK, to Birmingham, to work with somebody called Taras Kuzio, who is now in Canada. And the other was to go to Harvard, to the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, where there was a legendary historian called Roman Sparluk, who had never worked on energy but was a legendary person, and I, for some reason, decided to go to Harvard. My idea there was simply to work on Ukraine, but that institute used to have every Wednesday some kind of meeting to discuss Ukrainian news. So I had to prepare because I was very afraid that I didn't know anything. I prepared very well. Um, we didn't always talk about the Ukrainian <laughs> news, but I did prepare very well, and Every single news in 1996, 1997 was about energy. Mm -hmm. So I understood that energy was tremendously important for Ukraine. And that's when I wrote my first article on Ukrainian energy. I think um, many of the conclusions of that first article, maybe I wouldn't share them today, but that set the ball rolling. And that's how it all started. Um, I knew I wanted to do something with energy. For many years, I didn't have a clear issue for what was going to be the central question of this energy book I had in my mind. Eventually, it emerged. Um, 
and it's not about this book, it's about some other book. Um, mm-hmm. And it was about how the domestic politics affected energy issues. So basically I got into energy through Ukraine. Okay. To make a long story short. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like, uh, wasn't it Joseph Biden's son was involved in some gas <laughs> company yes. in Ukraine? And the idea is just stay away from the Ukraine because it's going <laughs> to deal, deal with gas and energy and, and bad things. <laughs> yeah. And because one of the books you've written, or both books, dealt with corruption as well. Yes, 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 yes. Uh-huh. And, and is that energy is synonymous with Ukrainian uh, corruption or... <sighs> It's an important part of the story. Important part of the story. Yes, uh-huh, yes, but uh-huh. that makes it very difficult to research. Yes, absolutely. Yes, um, and uh, in in one of my books, in in my first book, because I never I never published my dissertation as a book, oh. uh, <laughs> and I have to start crying. Um, <laughs> yeah, in, me in too. The, me too. Actually, okay. in that in that first book, I really look in detail at all the possible corruption uh, ways in which corruption took place. Um, and yes, it was, it was extremely interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then now you have your new book. We'll move us along a little bit, uh, about Russian energy chains and th- I, 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 you don't address, I know I feel the same way with about corruption and students come to me and they want to research corruption and energy. And there's a fine line I say between corruption and mismanagement <laughs> or management of energy resources. Yes. I mean, sometimes mismanagement is done on purpose. Yes. And we saw a lot of that in Central Europe also, and, and Ukraine and, and Russia, when there was the privatization, many directors of, of factories on purpose mismanaged so that they could rebuy them when they were in very bad shape. Um, so corruption is not so explicitly here. Yes. Because one of the things I, I realized after having written so much about corruption is that it is an important part of the story, but it's not the whole story. Yes. And understanding simply the interests of corrupt actors is an important part of the explanation, but it's not it's not sufficient. Yes. And in fact, uh, the first chapter you outlined really well, actually, the, the role that energy and power play. And maybe you could explain, this is one of my questions, but it's a very subtle point that you have in italics in the chapter, but power over versus power to. So my question is, what is the role of power within these chains and actually we needed to define chains so let me let me back up and actually look at my questions because they're somewhat in order is um can you describe both the literal and i don't think i've ever written this out before literal and allegorical (laughs) words like this but but for the word chains the literal and allegorical meanings of chains and you describe it in the in the first chapter sure um at some point, I want to s- differentiate between supply chains and value chains, or, or okay. my use of this, but yes. just for the moment. Uh-huh. Of course, when we talk about chains, we can talk about the actual set of connections and relationships uh, involving a material good or a financial good. But the allegorical sense is either the connection or the way in which a chain can constrain you, either in the form of path dependencies or dependencies or political dependencies. So it has those two senses. I also love the idea that chains can connect and they can also enslave. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I wish I could have like a big chain on top in my cover, but I guess they didn't want it, so. Yes, no, 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 I understand when it comes to choosing the pictures that are. (laughs) They made, they gave me a very hard time. Yes, yeah, you're you're limited. Also with the title, but. Oh, really? Yes, I, I was for five years 
dreaming of the title Chains, Chains of Value, Chains of Power. And that, that title came to me like in 2013, like at two in the morning. And I really liked that, but I didn't want that. So, but I think it's fine. I, think we oh, can survive. I love that. I love You'll have to write another book. <laughs> no, sorry. Sorry. Okay. With the same content. The same content. It would be like a dream, like that picture where you wake up every day and do the same thing. Yes, exactly the same thing for another, it took what, at least five years to write yes, this? Yes, yes. Yes, okay. Um, and then actually then, could you actually go into and how you differentiate, because this is key, is the difference between the value chain and the supply chain. Yes. Mm -hmm. So normally I have no problem talking about supply chain. And in fact, I am, you know, paying a lot of attention to the material goods. So they are being supplied from A to B, from Kuzbaz in Russia to Donetsk to Mariupol to this, to that. That's fine. But if you use the terminology simply supply chain, and this is something that one of the people who was like in one of the workshops I organized around the book and really emphasized um, this guy, what's his name? Uh, Tain Gustafsson. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. He really mm -hmm. emphasized that there is a lot of loss and increase in value in some of these chains, especially in the oil chain. So that, that, that needed to be part of my, of my framework. And if I simply say supply chain, that's not going to allow us to kind of pay attention to that. So that's why I use value chain. They also, when I had that workshop in 2019 or or 16 or 17, uh, 17, um, he and another person that I invited who was a gas and a gas sector specialist, they gave me the example of genes. And I, I'm very sorry that I didn't include that example in the book. But for example, they, they gave the example of the gene, mm -hmm. the, the, the pants value oh. chain and supply chain. And you could think, okay, you have the cotton, then you have the factory that makes the cloth, then you have the seamstress that seals the pants, and then that's the supply chain. But if you look at it in terms of value chain, it allows you to pay attention to other things. For example, currently, or in the last couple of years, jeans that were torn yes. were very valuable. So they say, well, that last thing where you tear up the gene, that is kind of diminishing from the supply chain, from the actual good, but it's adding to the value. Ah. So I use value chain because I wanted, not because I don't like supply chain, but I wanted to leave it open to the discussion of that value fluctuation, which for example, in the case of oil is so important. Yeah. And then maybe here we can focus on nodes because this is where some value is created in different forms. Could yes. you explain how you use nodes? Yes. So my original thought about nodes was about physical nodes where something would happen, like for example, a refinery. But again, with the help of Thane and other great people that um, commented on, on my early chapters, I understood that those nodes can also be regulatory nodes and they can be commercial nodes. So for example, a company that sets very clear contractual requirements is affecting the chain. And I think I have a diagram in chapter one or chapter two about this. It's not a physical node in terms of the gas or the oil going through that node, but it is affecting what happens in the chain. For example, all the contractual conditions that Gazprom had, um, and, and before Gazprom, the Ministry of Gas Export 
on the way gas trade can take place. So that is a node as well. And you could think about Brussels also as a node because it's having regulations that affect what you can do with those. Uh-huh. Like, like a, a governance node. In Yes, yes. And um, that was one of the hardest parts of the book to write. Again, as I mentioned, I'm very slow. So I spent, I'm sure, several weeks or months thinking about that. And at the end... Again, it was Stan Gustafsson who told me, well, you have to read Fernand Braudel when he discusses pepper and wood trade in the Mediterranean in the 14th century. And yes, he uses that. He talks about the trading houses in Venice, which are somehow set in the conditions for that trade. So somehow that's how I got to understood. But, but, but one of these nodes then, so we have the governance nodes, but also in the role that power or the value, how value is created or value is even reduced. And I, I wonder if it was one here. Um, okay, then you have to uh, correct me. Cause so it's in the, in the former Soviet Union, was it Tajikistan, where the different crude types of crude are mixed? It's your example in the book. Uh, in, it's in Siberia. In yes, Siberia. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. And the different, and there's, there's a region where it has really, the crude is not very valuable and then they, they mix it with the more valuable crude. Exactly. I think that's, that's the crude from Tatarstan. Yes. And, yes. And, Tatarstan. Um, I don't know. Ud- mm-hmm. I don't know whether it was another Udmurti or something like this. And that, I found that very interesting because mm-hmm. they made a po- Can you explain it first? Yes. So basically both in the oil pipeline and in the natural gas pipeline, gas or oil from different sources is flowing. In the case of natural gas, you cannot really separate it because it's uh, gas. In the case of oil, in theory, you can separate it. You can use batching, which is you put some synthetic oil or synthetic substance between a certain amount of, of oil, then you have that synthetic thing, um, substance, and then you have another separate batch. That way you keep your oil. As it flows through the pipeline. Yes, mm-hmm. you keep it separate. So let's say if you have oil that is uh, very light and sweet, and therefore very highly valued, you can keep that separate from a dark and sour oil. In the Soviet Union, and in Russia today, they don't really do that, although they could. What they do, in theory, is they have something called a bank kachesva, quality bank, for whatever reason it's called that way. And basically it means that the oil is mixed, and but when it gets out, still, if you get something that is of higher quality than what you had originally bought, then they adjust for the price. But... They didn't even use that in all the cases because if they were really going to use that fully, those parts of Russia that are contributing more middle, darkish oil as opposed to light oil like from Western Siberia, they would have to absorb that negative cost. And for some reason, that's not desirable. And that's part of the bargaining that that takes place within Russia and Russian regions. Um, I found a a few articles on this that I read, but I understand that it's also a little bit of a very sensitive question. Okay. And I wonder whether, I mean, there's people who have been writing about 
oil and uh, federal relations in Russia. And I wonder whether they have, you know, focused their attention on this, but it's, it's very interesting because those parts of Russia use that money. Like Tatarstan has a very proactive government. Yes. That certainly uses that oil revenue. But they need to yeah. keep that position. Otherwise they lose out. Yes. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yes. They need to make sure that the mix is occurring rather than not occurring because yes. then they won't get as much revenue. Exactly. Uh-huh. And and this is what I find so interesting in your book, though, is that you go through, okay, the technical details of, like, for example, how we've been talking, how gas or how oil flows and the pipeline pipeline network and also how these nodes, the, the values that are created from these nodes. So in this sense, by mixing higher higher quality and lower quality oil, you, you get a, well, medium quality, yes, but, but yes. the benefits, the, the financial benefits that are accrued and political benefits that are given because of this. And um, <clears throat> this was leading up to a question. And, um, oh yeah, so so my question is, and, and I think maybe in this case that we're talking about infrastructure, and you address it in the book about the, the, the lock-in of this technology. This is a Soviet era system in both cases, at least the basis of the, the coal, gas, and oil are based on Soviet Union designs, we could say at least. And yes, things have changed over the years, but, but this is still the, the basis. So it, under the, in the Soviet Union, when these things were developed, uh, my question uh, um, is basically, you know, and I've heard this from other people that members of the Politburo and, and other senior government members in the Soviet Union you know, had engineering backgrounds or very smart about technology and this engineered, engineered system. And how, how do you think that played a part, maybe the knowledge of the political leaders in how the technology was designed and implemented? Wow, that's an incredible question. <laughs> but, I mean, they may have had those backgrounds in the Politburo, but mm-hmm. I don't think that they were so involved in the actual building of the... Okay, but, but then let me press you uh, on yes. this. So, and even guide you maybe a bit on this. But, you know, if, if the flow is from east to west, for example, tying in uh, the, 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 the former satellites, Poland, Hungary, into, into the Soviet Union, that was done through technology. But it also has a political side to it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 maybe I misunderstood the okay, question. Okay, sorry, sorry. Uh, kind of, I thought that how involved they were in, in the actual technical drawing of the pipelines. Well, actually, that was one of my questions. Okay. But, so, but I mean, I don't, think, I don't think that the octogenarian people in the Politburo were, uh-huh. but I think there are kind of two sides here. Um, certainly, that system of what started as export pipelines to Western Europe ended up having a tremendous impact on the countries that the republics of the Soviet Union and and Comecon countries Mm -hmm. that acted as both consumers and transit states. Um, And it's had had a tremendous long-term impact. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy called Per Hoxelius. He wrote a tremendous book called Red Gas. Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And he's also in my study group in Germany, and he was also in one of those uh, workshops. Um, and I think he his focus is not directly on that question, but indirectly he, he talks about that impact. That impact, I would argue, 
was two sides. I mean, it's not really the, the point of your question, but that impact was, yes, keeping them dependent, keeping them in the loop, keeping them dependent, keeping their uh, gearing their economies to a certain type of development that had a very long term effect. But it also had another side, which was that it made the Soviet Union itself very sensitive to whatever problems would be in those areas. For example, if you look at GDR, Soviet relations, even that dependency gave the GDR government a certain um, leverage over Moscow. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's what you wanted to ask about. No, no, that's not. No, no. <laughs> so, but, mm-hmm. uh-huh. th- th- and yeah. then I'm going to give you another answer that probably is also not answering your okay, question. Okay, that's but, fine. <laughs> um, sometimes technology probably not masterminded by the guys in the Politburo, but by somebody a little bit lower, um, allowed interesting things to happen. So for example, that quote-unquote pipeline, that quote-unquote gas pipeline going from Urengoy to Germany, mm-hmm. that both the, the movie, uh, we were talking about Vitaly Mansky's movie, P- Pipeline, Truba, and my book talk about, that pipeline is actually in many places nine pipelines. Uh-huh. And uh, I think there is a, even a, a map in, in my gas chapter. So when, when you're going to the Ukrainian-Slovak border, it's nine lines because, again, because of the material properties of natural gas, you cannot have it in a giant pipeline. You cannot have a gigantic pipeline with all that volume. It uh, wouldn't move. Uh-huh. So they had to have it in nine pipelines. And why is that important? Because that would allow later certain manipulations yes. or certain use perhaps of one of these pipelines for reverse transit. So sometimes technology or the technical requirements of the good went against what politics would have wanted. I see. But still, I'm not answering your question. No, no, no. But but let's go with that, actually, the design of the, the gas pipelines, because I don't mean to move away from oil so much, because I, what I like about your book is that you actually address oil, which is often overlooked, and, and coal as well. Uh, but, but we'll stay with the gas, because this is the topic, But and the design of the pipelines, and more, and you, you kind of flag the, the importance of, of the pump stations and the metering stations, and how these were are on the Russian side, for example, in the transit from Ukraine to, we could say, Western Europe or Eastern Europe. And and the design of the pipeline, for example, is some of this gas is lost, right, for technical reasons and because of the power of the pumps, or it's lost because of leaks or, or other reasons. And maybe you could expand on the, the, the politics or the, maybe the even the Ukrainian example. I don't, I don't have something very specific in mind, but maybe you could explain about the, the challenges with this loss and why around the 2009, for example, uh, gas cut off between Russia and Ukraine, this, this, these technical losses were uh, a bit of a problem. Absolutely. So I think there's like two, two very interesting elements here. And I think it all has to do with the technical losses and also with the issue of accountability uh, transparency and what technically the system can account for. And you're very, very correct in pointing that during the Soviet system, the way this was built, there was no accountability needed because there was trust among the participants and even among Soviet and Western European participants. When I had my a lot of discussions around this book, 
I mean, when I was writing it, it became clear that the, the system that had developed between Western European um, companies that were dealing with Gazprom and Gazprom was a, a very good camaraderie. So there was mm -hmm. a lot of trust, but let's mm -hmm. leave that aside for the moment. So within the Soviet Union, it was the same state. It was not necessary really to control. No need to pravidiai, davidiai, no pravidiai, like Reagan would say, trust, but verify. So, for example, you didn't have metering stations between one republic and the other. And amazingly, even almost 20 years after Ukrainian independence, they didn't have metering stations on the Ukrainian side. They had the metering stations on the Russian side of the border, which was incredible. So this was kind of the technical side of it. At the same time, there was also not a system that really accounted for like if there was natural gas lost in the compressor stations, what they're calling the, the pumping stations, um, it was not possible to really distinguish between the gas that was lost for technical reasons or leaks, the gas that was kind of used to to push to 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 make these compressor stations work. And it was a combination between a technology that was built for a world where you didn't need to verify, mm -hmm. on the one hand, a technology that was not perfect in many ways, and third, this lack of transparency in the accounting. Right. And that all was very important, as you mentioned, in 2009, because when the Russians argued that Ukraine was stealing gas, it was very difficult for Ukraine to show that it was not stealing gas. Yes, yes. And and some of this um, loss, though, also has value, doesn't it? This, this lack or this intransparency over, over gas loss has value itself for other interests. Do you know where I'm going with this question? Um, <laughs> um, kind of, but you may I, want to I, No, I, I mean, um, I, I, maybe I'm pushing towards the Ukrainian oligarchs and and the system that developed in, in oh, Ukraine. Yes. Uh -huh. I mean, when you have flows that are not controlled and that are so difficult to verify and that you have no interest in verifying, many, many, many things can happen and happen. Yes. Um, There is more of a clear physical sense of this in the case of oil, because again, because of the physical characteristics of oil, it's easier for you to make a cut in the pipeline and steal it and put it somewhere. You cannot do that so well with natural gas. But in the case of the natural gas as well, there were a lot of flows that were not accounted for, like you are saying. If you don't know whether that 10% that is supposed to be used by the compressor stations is really used by the compressor stations or is used for something else, you can make a lot of profit. And a lot of the profits had to do not only with that lack of transparency, but also with the coexistence of different markets that allow you to have the same good sold for $10 at one market, 30 at another, 200 at another, and then you can make a lot of profit. Yes, yes. So, so the intransparency has value in itself, actually, yes. for, for others. Yes. And, yes. And, that, that, and that's not even for the people putting the gas in the pipeline, right? Of course, the Russians wouldn't want theft to happen. Or, or I shouldn't say theft, just some unplanned direction, misdirection of the resource by, by others. Yes, but let's, let's make a caveat here. You said that the Russians did not, may not want 
the gas to be stolen. That's not true. Um, in my in another book mm-hmm. that I wrote that was specifically dealing with corruption, it's called whatever energy dependency and corruption. I have evidence that at least there was an acceptance that often there was an agreement between both sides that this um, gas can be stolen. And when I wrote that book, which was like in 1998, 97, there was a lot of people, there were a lot of people talking about Ukraine stealing gas to compensate for Russian energy aggression. But it was not that. It was not Ukraine, good Ukraine, stealing gas to compensate for bad Russian. It was Ukrainian and Russian actors together in agreement. Uh It was a trans-border alliance of another type. All right. Thank you for not putting that in this book. <laughs> no, I mean, but, but it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, you put all this together that how, how the, and, but this is what your book does well is to show how the, it was planned in the Soviet Union, these, these, this infrastructure and then how it changed over time and that the alternative value, I guess, that it's creating for parties nowadays that it was not anticipated in the past. That's a great way to put it. You know, I couldn't have put it that way, but I think I think I need to make a note of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it's this past infrastructure that's still in place today, and then maybe that can bring us to the role that the EU plays. Um, uh, but but let's hold off on there. I have one of the questions, and I don't know if you can answer or not. But um, one one of the people that has always interested me is uh, Dimitro Firtash. <laughs> And just because he, he, him and his company entered Hungary and they were offering gas for sale in, in Hungary and they were quite competitive and they actually got, I think, around 10%, even higher than that. And then the government stepped in one day and, or I should say, the regulator stepped in one day and shut everything down. Um, but maybe... I need to be, you need to fill me up on, fill me in on that. Oh, okay, okay. I think I wrote it up someplace. So, okay. uh, but I but I, I don't know much more about it than that. But But I know he's also wanted by, the United States authorities, yes. they want to take him. I think he's in Austria right yes, now. Yes, yes, Do you have any information or this is just my interest? Well, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I don't have so much information about the Hungarian side, but mm-hmm. in, in Hungary, I mean, not in Hungary, in Ukraine, basically he was the master of those intermediary companies. So intermediary companies have been, you know, around in Ukrainian gas business for at least 20 years. Um, and he has been in many, many different iterations of them. And basically their role was to make possible the flow and take a 30% cut. Okay. And the 30% cut was not even in, in money, it was in volumes, yes. which they later could sell at international prices or, or not at yes, European, yes, yes. Western European prices. Yes. So uh, he's certainly a master of that. Yeah, and this is what I think he's, he might have sold in, in Hungary, was that gas. And I wouldn't then, be surprised. Yeah, yeah, um, because they, he was able to undercut the competition, basically, and everyone couldn't believe how he could under undersell them. Yes, and, and it, I mean, and I think that's another kind of interesting element, which is kind of the sometimes cheap natural gas is not it's not so good yes because cheap natural gas can be cheap because you have that element of non-transparency and that happened for example in 2006 there was another gas cutoff from Russia there was an agreement that allowed for cheap supplies to continue but that cheapness was 
through those intermediary companies. Uh-huh. And he was there in 2006. Right, right, and right. When that agreement was made like at three in the morning, <laughs> he comes <laughs> in. Yeah, so oh, okay. uh, it's cheap, but there's a big cut. Yes. And that allows that allows it for to be cheap at the expense of the state with those actors getting the difference. Yes, yes. 2006, and, 2009. And actually, we, we don't even get into it, but we, you, and you don't adjust it in your book either, is ultimately, right, this is the Russian people. This is their resource that's being sold uh, abroad, and they may be getting the short. And actually, uh, the, the one discussion you have, you actually have it in there, it's... It's on the gas, right? Where the decision has to be made between whether it's going to be used for domestic use, export, or turned into like a petrochemical. Yes. And this is also a good example of the value chain. Can you maybe describe that? And then the thinking behind how how these proportions are allocated? Yes. Um, So that's at the very kind of pretty much at the beginning of the natural gas um, value chain. And... I do not have uh, all the details about how Gazprom or its different sections are deciding, but there are many things that you can do with natural gas. You don't have to, first of all, you don't have to produce it. And if you produce it, you can sell it to the new markets in the East. You can turn it into hydrocarbon, um, higher value. Like fuel stocks or something. Uh, Yes. now I forgot the word, but yes. Um, or you can, and I think that was very interesting because historically, there has also been a very big discussion within Russia about the connection between the natural gas sector and the electricity sector. And for a long time, Gazprom didn't want to sell its natural gas to the Russian electricity sector because it was regulated and they didn't want to get those lower prices, they wanted to export it. So that's kind of a separate discussion, but it's all related to discussions at various domestic levels that have that have redistributive effects as well, including in the people of the region, yes. which very often, as you mentioned, get the short side of the stick. Yes, yes. So then it goes back to the power, the power relations, even power over or power to. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Did we talk about that already? No. Uh, no, we didn't. Uh, I think we were getting there because I wanted to, I, yeah, I know, I wanted you to define chains first. So maybe you could explain what this power over versus power to means in the book. Yes. So very, um, very often we, or writers about energy politics in, in the former Soviet world have discussed energy as an instrument of foreign policy power, of, in particular of Russia's power. And uh, what I'm arguing is that that's only one part of the story. Again, I'm not denying that Russia is using energy for foreign policy purposes, but if we simply concentrate on power over, we do not pay attention to the ways in which energy may give specific actors within a state the opportunity to to grow. And for example, if again, if we take the case of Ukraine, manipulations around energy gave rise not only to the oligarchs, but to the political groups that those oligarchs or some of those oligarchs in turn mm-hmm. supported. So I think that is important because it's again, it adds a domestic element. And, and you can also look at this in the case of Russia, within Russia as well. So it's not simply power over, but the making possible the development of certain economic and political groups as well. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, in both both cases, we, we discussed before starting the interview was, uh, or in all three of your cases for oil, gas, and coal, it ends up in Germany. And yes. I, I think this is a really good choice to make it end up in Germany, the, the routes that you choose. And how does Germany come out in this? I, I, I um, yeah, some of the parts I kind of had to skim, unfortunately. I'll go back and read them, I promise. But, but, and it, at least from my reading of what you wrote, you're a bit ambivalent. Um, no, that's not the right. It's it's not clear to me how it makes Germany look because if they're at the end of the supply chain, or sorry, the value chain in in these cases that you outline, does that give Germany more power or less power or? What's the power relation between Germany and Russia here? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for highlighting this because I actually think that this is something that I did not properly problematize in the book. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So thank you. Um, um, I also want to say that because of the way in which I had to choose the chains for them to make sense scientifically, to be comparable, um, they did not, they were not equal in terms of the, let's say, percentage that they actually meant in the domestic German sector. Because at the end, you know, that oil coming through my oil chain was like 6%. Okay. The coal was, only natural gas was, was more significant. But Germany comes in, in a kind of double role. Because on the one hand, if you look at the sets of relationships that developed during the 1970s and 80s as part, of, as part and parcel of the Soviet uh, oil and natural gas exports um, drive. Yes. Germany was, Germany and those uh, incumbent companies, those big four, um, I forget now the names, but... Uh, well, it was Eon, RWE, yes. SMN, right? and then uh, Wise. Yeah, they, they, some of them changed yeah. names. But, yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. They were very, very much vested. They had a vested interest, very, very vested interest in those type of contractual relations that were so key for Gazprom to maintain high profits. Uh-huh. And they were not very happy for that to change. Okay. Um, of course, by the time my focus period comes in, which is yes. starts in April of or in October of 2011, those contractual relations, those types of contractual relations were under pressure. But those incumbent players did not want that to happen. And it affected them in many, many different ways because it was not simply a way, it was not simply a problem or an issue of the profits they could have through destination agreements. So the, 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 the contractual system, the traditional contractual system that was set up prevented Gas de France from selling gas in Germany, prevented Germany from, mm-hmm. and that, pro, that protected their profits. But also their role had a domestic element that allowed them to have a very secure and also profitable role, for example, in electricity generation. Mm -hmm. And if you start destroying that contractual system that protects those destination clauses and so on, you cannot keep that other side of the question. So they they had a role in maintaining the system for as long as they could. But at the end, they, they couldn't really 
maintain it. And even I think even to this day, even when those companies no longer exist in the way they existed then, which is a little bit, some people will say it's sad, um, when you look at all the discussions around governance, um, responsibilities around or who has the the say concerning regulations around Nord Stream 2, yes. you see a little bit of an echo of that, whether it's the, the national level or not national level. But in, to, make it a sh- uh, to make it a short story, um, those companies played a role in maintaining that system for as long as they could. Yes, yes. And backed by the governments. Yes. And the governments yes. represent. Yes, so yes. But that, 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 that comes into under attack, you know, in the beginning in, in, in the 2011, 2012. Yeah. So we can go there now for the EU, uh, yes. basically right. The third energy package yes. then set out to challenge this. Then the European commission wanted to break, break these, what do we call these monopoly chains or vertically integrated chains and, and the monopolies themselves and introduce competition, uh, through the third energy package and how, so maybe that's an easy place to start. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it to you. But uh, what was the role of the third energy package to break this up? But I, I, the one question I'm driving at is what is the role of the, of the EU and maybe specifically the European Commission in changing the value chain within the borders of the EU? Well, the, the main role is they wanted to create a single European market. And they realized that the way those, in particular, gas contracts were working, it was not one market, it was many different markets. So they tried to effect change in that. And of course, to do that, you you need to turn illegal a lot of the clauses that had been the bread and butter of trans-Eurasian natural gas trade for 30, uh, 40 years. And that was that was very problematic also because you sometimes had the desire to do that change, but you didn't have the infrastructure to do that change because Mm -hmm. you may say, yes, we want competition. We want gas competing against gas. We want high churn, 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 churn rates, but sometimes you don't have that other gas coming in. That's the first issue. The second issue is, I think there was also a little bit of a contradiction in the European Union's thinking, because on the one hand, they wanted that single market. On the other hand, they kept talking about natural gas security and how you couldn't get all your gas from, or, or too much of your gas from one region, but sometimes those two things come into contradiction. Yes. And that has not been, that has not been resolved yet. Yes. Uh, so kind of, you know, what is the market side and what is the strategic side? I think that is still very much, um, uh, un- but, unanswered. But maybe if you discuss Nord Stream 2, um, does that, because uh, in here there's specific rulings, in fact, and specific regulations, but Gazprom can only retain, what, 50% of the import capacity, but then the other 50% has to be open to... Correct, but uh, that's totally true. But at the point of intake near Leningrad, near St. Petersburg... There is no other supplier. <laughs> and there is a law in Russia that says that only Gazprom can mm-hmm. export. So, yes. So what's, what's that other 50%? What can that be? The, there is one little point that actually my 
Ukrainian colleagues from a very interesting organization called Dixie Group, where a former student of mine is now the director, which tells you how old I am. <laughs> um, they pointed actually Gazprom gave another alternative. Gazprom said, well, actually, we could sell the other 50%, so we cannot open it to another provider because there's no other provider, but we could kind of sell it in the open market and then have the competition, but that, that didn't work either. Because it's still gas problem, gas. Yes, and as long and if there is no change within Russia mm -hmm. limiting that that role of Gazprom, uh, that that's a problem. Now, legally, by definition, the manager and um, operator of the overall Russia gas transit system has a monopoly on pipeline exports. There's no longer a monopoly on. LNG exports. Uh -huh. So how that could change the situation, I don't okay. know. But you know that's that's mm -hmm. that's perhaps something to look into. Mm -hmm. And and then the topic of LNG is interesting. You bring this out, I think, in the last chapter um, about the the limited impact or the bigger impact that LNG has. I'll let you explain because here you, you go through the value chains and yeah, the pipelines and or even the how how coal itself and steel is is shipped out of Russia but uh what is the impact now that LNG is being used to export russian gas yeah. well i think the the fact that russian gas actors gas producers are paying attention to LNG is important and we need mm -hmm. to keep this in mind it's something very important to keep in our in our radar i believe that those LNG Facilities are very far from European markets to play a role. But mainly, I didn't really go into, into much detail into that in the book, but I was reacting to an American, a US-American, in my view, a little bit naive belief that, um, that US natural gas in the form of LNG could, quote unquote, save Eastern Europe from Russia. Yes. And I think, um, I don't think that's very realistic for several reasons. And, and I think we need to pay attention to a couple of things that sometimes we forget about concerning LNG. First, LNG is ecologically problematic because you do spend more than 10% of it in cooling it at least cooling it and maybe in, in warming it later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you don't, if you don't keep the facility in good shape, the thing, the the, the gas evaporates. Oh. You need to keep the fridge yes. or the freezer running all the time. Running. Uh -huh. Secondly, after you regasify that natural gas, you need to send it through pipelines. Yes. You don't have an LNG facility in every town. So yes. you may have an LNG facility in in Klaipeda. You may have an LNG facility uh, in in Western Poland, but you still, after that, it still has to get through the pipelines. Yes. And finally, many of the people who were playing placing so many hopes on LNG forgot that there is the issue of price. Yes. And if the LNG, if the American LNG 
once you regasify it and, and convert the, the pricing, it's not competitive with the Russian gas, well, it's not going to save anybody because nobody's going to buy it unless yes. you subsidize it, which the US is not going to do. Yes, yes. Uh, so it's just kind of, we need to be more realistic about, yes. about LNG. And, and, and this goes back, actually, I, I, I hit on it in my book as well, is, is the, the social cost or the social benefit of low energy uh, or not even accounting for the price of, the, for example, gas or district heating or coal. And maybe you could explain a bit more how you address the social side of the social cost to society about not accounting for the true cost of energy resources. Yes. Um, first of all, I want to say that I found a very interesting um, dialogue points between your book and my book. And yes. um, when we were doing the, your presentation a few yes. months ago, um, because you deal with the issue of of justice, and I don't know up to which point you were thinking about that when you were talking about it in your book, but it's it's actually there at several levels because there are states that have kind of historical justice issues vis-a-vis -vis Russia, like Lithuania, and like how does energy fit into that? But there's also the question of domestic social justice and energy justice and or perceptions of it so i think there i think it's extremely interesting how justice appears at several levels yes um, and I don't know whether we discussed that when we had the presentation yeah, of your book, do, but, but we have, but I, there's a lot in your book, actually, <laughs> there's a lot to, for us to cooperate about, or this, this, these, these, because, sorry, uh, I'll, I'll speak for just for a second, because what, what I'm realizing is in Western Europe and America is, is, you know, uh, for, for example, uh, what prompted my thinking on this different perception is when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan just a, a month or so ago was people were like, well, now they have to govern and they have to provide the medical services and they have to help these people and education. And it's kind of like, you know what? The Taliban actually don't care about medical services and education, but it's our assumption of how governments work. And in the sense, it's, it's maybe more of a Western notion that we pay the true cost of our gas or true cost for electricity. But Actually, it's it's much more subsidized. Even this communist regime, Soviet Union way of thinking that we we need district heating, we need heating, but that doesn't mean I'm going to pay the full cost of that. So you are basically also saying that it's not only about needs, but about perceptions of needs yes. and how these are also instrumentalized. Yes, and you know, and actually, energy subsidies are. Everywhere, I just learned that by not having a car, I'm subsidizing people who have cars in Boston by thirteen thousand dollars a year. Wow! <laughs> I just learned it's that. True, though. Right? I just learned that when I went on that bicycle yeah. uh, camping trip. Um, so it's it's everywhere. But I think the the cost. So I think one of the things that you're getting at with this issue is the true cost of low energy prices. So in the short term. They those low energy prices were quote unquote very positive in that they kind of softened the transition. I mean, most former Soviet states saw their GDPs yeah. plummet by fifty percent in a few years in the nineteen nineties. So those energy subsidies or or low energy prices kept through non transparency softened this a little bit. Um, in a place like Belarus, they not only softened it, but they kept yes. a regime in power. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and still do to a certain extent. But the real cost is that you are transferring the cost to future generations. Because when you, either in an ecological sense, when you're keeping a CO2-intensive economy going, or in a economic sense, when you are taking on huge loans like Ukraine has had to do in the last five years to pay for energy imports, or in a political sense, in terms of all those actors that were given the power to, that were supported through that system of energy as a feeding ground for so many. Karmulishka, they, 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 they a nice word in Russian. Karmush, karmushka. Um, and in a sense, that is a prize that is is not seen in the short term, but it's there for the generations to come. And that's a problem because they have to pay the price for that. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> this gets us maybe, uh, I, I don't want to go to the end of the book yet, but uh, the transition towards a clean, maybe we frame it within the EU, uh, the use of more renewable energy, investment to energy efficiency, these kind of begin to threaten at least, and even the, the uptake of electric vehicles, the phasing out fossil fuels essentially, can destabilize and alter these value chains. Absolutely, absolutely, because those value chains are based on the idea that there is a significant demand for those goods in the end markets. And that is absolutely coming under question, certainly concerning you know, natural gas and oil, uh, even with the case of, of, of coking coal, mm-hmm. uh, now that you have the carbon offset issue, that is, that is coming into question. And so that's why I'm always a little bit concerned when Ukraine pays so much attention to Nord Stream 2. Uh, it tells you how important that participation in the Russian value chains has been for Ukraine, but those um, those supply chains may not be the ones that will prevail if the European Union is successful in moving towards uh, decarbonization. Actually, that's a good example then, because it's actually happening. So with building of Nord Stream 2, South Stream, it's removing Ukraine as a transit country. Can you describe, and you, you do, uh, the, the impact, or slightly, because it's out of your time frame, but, but describe the impact by Russia changing the supply lines. Well, it has a tremendous impact uh, on Ukraine, first of all, because, I mean, the, at the most obvious way, because of the transit fees. Now, when we talk about transit fees, it's not simply the money that Ukraine may have been paid, one billion or one and a half billion, two billion sometimes. For many years, those quote-unquote transit fees were paid through lower prices. Um, but it's also about the impact on the system as a whole. If you have a natural gas system and you do not use it fully, you cannot really keep it working even for your own oh, domestic yes. use. And that's, uh, that's where pressure and pressure management comes in. And that's a big problem for Ukraine where it's changing a role from big-scale, large-scale transit state to something else is going to have effects all throughout the economy. 
Yes, just uh, yeah to emphasize it, it's written in the book, right? The the pressure of the pipelines has to stay high, and essentially the the pipelines themselves. I'm kind of guessing here too were designed for high pressure with this flow through. Absolutely yes. And so even for domestic use, they need a high flow through uh, to maintain the pressure for their own domestic use. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. And it's interesting uh, when you said that they were designed for high pressure. That's also very interesting from a history of technology point of view. That's something that a little bit um, Per Hoxelius deals with in Red Gas. There's a tremendous uh, backstory about the steel that was used for those pipelines. But that maybe you can have an interview with him and, and talk about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, that's okay. That, and, uh, you know, how, the, how this uh-huh. Austrian steel producers played a role and so on. But yes, so yes. they were designed for high pressure. Yes. And it was essential and that they are not really designed to work with low pressure. Okay, good. Uh, I have to remember, I have a DVD I need to give to you. I don't oh, know if it's, in, it? it's, it's in Vienna or it's at home. I'll have to look. But it's, um, it is about the Osberg uh, pipeline and how Hungary participated in building wow. it. I so got, how did you get it? Uh, they, I don't know. Someone made a video about it, an organization here in Budapest. And then I went and paid like a thousand forints for the DVD set. But it's all in Russian and I think Hungarian. Ooh, so excellent. I think Hungarian. So either way, you can understand it. Very interesting. Very interesting. My Hungarian is not, it, it's okay, but watching a whole movie uh, is a challenge for me. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's going to be interesting. We could have like a party. We'll have a party. I, this was Pop always party. my, my view is have a student party and watch the oil film on it. So, but okay, I have to, I have to do it. I'll bring it, I'll bring it later. Outlook. Um, then, um, uh, I'm looking at here, Catherine. Oh, we've gone through almost all my questions here. Yeah, um, you're very good, Lila. Yeah, I guess maybe following on just actually what you just spoke about and destabilizing, um, and is is it possible? I mean, this is beyond your book. This is definitely this is for your next book. Actually, it will be like post fossil fuel states. And what is the future for them? Because if, you know, if we are really investing into uh, alternative energy technologies, um, you know, what is it in, in your perception, at least for the case of Russia, uh, we have lots of changes in Russia for sure, but they have nuclear technology that they're exporting, uh, of course, you know, massive reserves of oil, of gas, but does this diminish their role because they are so rich in natural resources of, for fossil fuels, but other, other natural resources? <laughs> If there is a massive move towards renewables, yes, it certainly mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. I think there's no no way around it. Um, I do not think that there's going to be a, a sufficiently high increase in demand for uh, electricity produced by nuclear power plants from Russia to compensate for that. I, yeah. I doubt it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I see that as, a, as an issue. But when you're talking about countries like Ukraine, it's going to affect them, but will they have enough investment to be able to build upon that, to capitalize on that, to profit from that. That's a question. But doesn't this whiten Ukraine's uh, kind of energy sector, or even economy, by not having these essential gas rents flowing into the, into the country? It does, but with two caveats. First, Will there be enough investment for the other areas to develop? And, you know, when the gas, the Nord Stream 2 agreement was signed between 
the US and Germany kind of allowing this to be built to the end, a green fund for Ukraine was established. Kind of saying oh, Ukraine yes, needs yes. to move to renewables, it needs to leave aside coal, we are going to contribute each 175 million, but that's not enough. You yeah. need like 10 times more. So um, will there be enough? And secondly, some Ukrainian oligarchs are already moving into like solar areas like Akhmetov. But I think it will eventually, it, it can live into that okay. direction. So, so we need more oligarchs involved in renewable energy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but also more transparency in renewable Oh, okay. And well, maybe we can't have everything. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes. And then I, I would need to look at the renewable chains. Okay. Oh, yeah. That, that's perfect. <laughs> yes. But I'm not sure I'm going to do that. But um, <laughs> so, um, you're still young enough. So, so yes. My, my, my final question, I think, on, on the book, and it really stems, I think, from your first chapter and parts of your second the, or the last chapter is the role of these power relationships. Because you really emphasize in the first chapter, and it really caught my attention, is power relations. And maybe can you describe overall the book as a whole, what power relations are exposed? Well, um, I think at least in, in, in possibility, you have the power relations between a former hegemon, the Soviet Union now in the form of Russia that created that system, that value chain system, because it was created under the Soviet Union to increase um, cohesion within the bloc, but especially to increase income to the Soviet Union, and that you have the power of that former hegemon that co tries to continue to control it, and to, to a certain extent continues to do. You have the power of those internal players that become empowered to certain types of energy relations. You also have the power of the good itself, mm -hmm. uh, the materiality that mm -hmm. is perhaps not manifesting itself directly into power, but which is constraining or supporting different activities. And I think that's something that we seldom pay attention to, but that this book brings out into the discussion. Yes, yes. I, I completely agree. I, I just love the framing of the book and then yeah, how, how it's carried out in the in the case studies. So it's it's excellent, excellent. You're very kind. <laughs> no, no, no. It, 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 you can just see, and and I just want to um, maybe it's basic, but the writing is excellent, and and some books begin and then towards the end they kind of fall apart. Your book is excellent. Every chapter is very clear and very well written, and it sustains itself through throughout the whole book. Well, I appreciate that. Um, as you know f from the acknowledgments, I had a lot of support from different organizations and that that was very important. Um, I didn't have a lot of money because I, I didn't have access to like European money, like, you know, millions, but that support meant a lot to me because it let me know that there was light at the mm -hmm. end of the pipeline <laughs> and it forced me to, to do it and to try to do it well. And, um, very often for us academics, we start a project and, and we don't know and we don't have confidence in ourselves. And sometimes those things end up as books, sometimes they don't end as books, or at least, you know, we have sometimes experiences like that with dissertation. And in this case, I felt a moral responsibility towards, especially towards the Woodrow Wilson Center that uh, not only gave me one year of time to work on it, of the five or six years that I worked on it, but that also uh, made the book part of its series within Colombia. And uh, that kind of 
gave me the push at the end, which sometimes we really need. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And 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 sorry, uh, you mentioned before, and we discussed elsewhere, was the feedback that you got. Can you describe the feedback? Yes, that was really one of the best things. So um, another year of my work on the book was financed by a fellowship uh, supported by the, it's called EURIAS, European Consortium of Institutes for Advanced Studies. Um, it was a co one of those Marie Curie co-fund programs, no longer exists in that form, but at that time it um, co-funded fellowships at different European Union at Institutes for Advanced Studies, and I spent a year at the Hanse Wissenschafts College in Greifswald, no, not in Greifswald, in, in Delmenhorst, Germany, which is actually one of the poorest cities in Germany, but let's leave that aside for the moment. And they also had money for me to have a workshop. I used the workshop to bring in 10 amazing people. I think the names are here in the acknowledgements. I yes. could, if you want, we can pull them up. Um, yeah. uh, um, and we spend one day discussing each of my chapters separately, one day discussing their, whatever they wanted to discuss. It was tremendously useful. Then I spent about one year and a yes, half working through implement, the comments. Well, I spent six months writing the comments. Yes, yes. And then a year implementing the comments. And then I had two other people, um, Peter Rutland and Stacey Clausen, read the new form of the book, making sure that it made sense. And then I had the the reviewers from Colombia, but they were very kind. So I yeah. didn't have to. I just had to change, you know, the order of some chapters. They didn't ask me to redo everything. Well, if you have Stacy Clausen reading it, I know her. Uh -huh, so from where? I, from we were together in Eleap in this emerging leaders for oh. energy environment. When policy. was that? Uh, I don't know, like 10, 10 years ago, almost eight years ago. So yeah, we we were together in this organization that fostered cooperation between European and I would say American academics and policy experts. Experts. That's fantastic. Was that when she was doing that? She had a kind of postdoc that sent people to three different think tanks. One think tank in the U.S., one in Germany, and one elsewhere. No, no. no but but she would have been on these travel. We, we went on different trips. It was funded by the Robert Bosch Foundation, and it was organized by um, the Atlantic Council. And it was tremendous. It was it was so great. They still have it, but but apparently you have to pay for your own travels and stuff. I have to say we had a lot of fun yeah. because it wasn't our money. But on the other hand, it established this network that we have that many of us are still totally connected with with each other. Yeah. So she's a very interesting person. She is not a traditional academic. Uh, she has a little bit of a different profile now. But she also did the same for another of my books. And I mean, I, yes. I was paid by the European Union in that case. I didn't pay her for my pocket. But um, and she also did a very good job in kind of reading the whole book in one week uh -huh. and kind of, you know, giving me. Very oh, I'll keep her in mind for my... Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and Peter Rodland, I don't know if you're familiar with him. No. He is, um, I think, one of the best people in, in post-Soviet studies in, in the... He's originally from the UK, but he has been a professor at Wesleyan for many years. He is not only a walking encyclopedia, but he's a tremendous, tremendously collegial person. Uh, if you mention his name anywhere... In Eastern Europe, you people will start smiling immediately because he has helped so many people, and he also helped me, also kind of giving an over. He was in the he was in the workshop, but he also later read the whole thing, and um, he was very very useful. Oh, excellent! So yeah, but that, this that is what takes to write. I use my PhD students. <laughs> for feedback. Well, well, well. Actually, they are <laughs> yes. uh, very often 
yes. the most demanding. Yes, yes. I had the most, I presented several chapters of this in Bremen at a PhD colloquium because I'm very much connected with Bremen. And some of them were very skeptical and they gave me a very hard time. Yes, yes. It's, for me, it's their time for revenge on me. So yes. Uh, so I mean, it's good that that there's a way of connecting, you know, different generations and different mm. um, levels of juniority or seniority. Also, because different generations and different ages have different views of mm -hmm. scholarship. For example, the people in Bremen. One person told me that political science is supposed to make things simple. And oh. you are making things too complicated. <laughs> so no. Oh, so. <clears throat> look, all I know is your book is excellent, and it really just how the route that you took, the li literal route that you took, right? The value chains and going from the molecules or the liquid and to extraction. It, it's it's a really good device that you use to describe, yeah, how the value is created along the ways. So my my final questions to you is maybe it's it's along what we just talked about. Actually, it was about teaching though. Uh, and because uh, I'm, I'm always unsure myself when I'm teaching about energy policy Ooh. or technologies is how, how do you, maybe this is too broad of a question, but how, how do you teach about the energy system itself? Are there particular, because you're teaching in international relations and political yeah, but science. I, I, yes, but I don't mm -hmm. teach very often courses about energy. What? Most of my courses are about post-Soviet politics and post-Soviet foreign policy. So oh. I include energy there, but I don't have okay. any course. I have only one course that is specifically about energy. Okay. And I try to... I mean, we're, I'm, we're talking about the United States. Yes. I first have to make oh, students yeah. understand the difference between different types of energy. I also try to get them to understand how energy is more than the direct energy. So for example, there is this concept, how is it called? Energy return on investment. Yeah, that? ROI, or yes. return on investment. Yes, uh -huh. that you can, I mean, yes. there are different definitions of it, like more narrow. Or, yes. So to look at energy, not simply, you need to look at the specific good that becomes electricity or whatever, but how about if you if you engage into the discussion what is necessary for that first good to be produced or what happens when you have to deal with disposing or the externalities. So I try to introduce those two things into their thinking okay. as a basis for further discussions. Okay. But and being this the United States or being that the United States, yeah. a lot of the discussions that are going on in Europe now about um, liberalization, you know, they're they're kind of a different. It's a different set of issues that are important there. Yes. Um, but it's the beginning of a conversation, and okay. uh, actually, one of my students who he didn't take the energy class, he took another class. He was later given a a medal of honor by the Polish government. Oh. Uh, by for supporting U.S. Polish energy relations, I, I can oh. give you his name later. So yes. it, it works in different ways. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, I, I feel bad. I don't know. I, I had this teacher, Matty Kaups, and he taught about yeah. This is actually where I did a lot of learning about uh, yeah Russia, the Soviet Union. He had to flee Lithuania or Latvia. In, that was at Bristol or, or no? Back it was in, in US? Minnesota, University of Minnesota, Duluth. So uh, and and yeah, he just kind of didn't care about the students. He, he was retiring. So he would just talk about the Soviet Union and the geography of it. And I think half the class had totally went over their heads, but I got a lot out of it. So 
Well, I mean, you, you also get what you, get, you put into. Yes. So sometimes I feel like I do that to my students where I'm really excited about the topic. So I just talk about it and maybe half of them don't understand what I'm talking about. But, but they, certainly you, you, you got... Um, <laughs> very much into it and it set you in a very interesting yes. path. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, right? I, I absolutely love this topic. What's this top? Love this topic. Okay, Margarita, I want to thank you very much. Uh, do you have any more to say? I don't want to <laughs> cut this off. Uh-huh. No, I want to say that I, I think you have done a great job with kind of bringing out the best of the book <laughs> and uh, making, you know, me feel that, you know, it was worthwhile to spend all this time working on it and um, make him also feel welcome within your research group and your environment here in Budapest. So that's that's very valuable and I, I very much appreciate it. Great. Thank you. And I should just add, yeah, we're actually doing this interview in, well, I guess we officially need to call it Democracy Institute. It's the old Central European University building. And then now CU's been, yeah, old new, but it's a beautiful building. Yes, yeah. It's amazing to be here. I'm very, very touched to be here. It no, means, means me too. To me. This is my old floor. So the noise Ooh. you hear in the background is actually- Where was your office? I was just on, on the front side of the Ooh. fourth floor here. So now, yeah, life life is somehow in Vienna, but which is an energy rich city. That's true. It's an energy hub too. Right? Yes, yes. Baumgarten. So I have to make inroads there. Yes. <laughs> okay, Margarita, yeah, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. <laughs>